Well, we are looking at, um, I'll wait till the people in the back decide to quit talking so I won't be distracted. Perfect. Good, good. Don Hardister told me I missed someone else who was here for the first time. Where are you? There you are. Okay, great, great. Glad you came. How many of you here for the last time? (laughs) We began months ago in the book of Genesis and really sort of went from mountain peak to mountain peak. And um, uh, our goal was to land um, last weekend and this weekend on the story of David The Bible tells us that David is both the root and um, that Jesus, rather, is the root and the offspring of David. And uh, I think there are a lot of verses in the Bible. If you don't look at real closely, you really don't get the significance of them. What that's saying is that Jesus was David's root and David and Jesus was David's offspring. And one of the things um, I think we really should realize about David is how um, how remarkably transcendent he was. And I'll, I'll give you reasons for that in a minute. But there, um, there have been people down through the history of the Bible that um, they... Well, let me let me let me read this here. Let me see if I can find this. I thought about this earlier. It's a great prophecy about Joseph. And it says, let me see. Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a well. His branches run over the wall. Say that one phrase, his branches run over over the wall. Now, what that means is Joseph's vision, Joseph's impact, Joseph's influence, Joseph's life went way beyond his own generation. Here we are talking about him thousands of years later, right? And I don't know if you remember the whole story. We didn't have time to cover all this, but Joseph um, Joseph secured a promise from his relatives that When they left Egypt, they would carry his bones with them to the promised land. How many of you are familiar with that story? So, you know, here's a weird picture. There's a Moses carrying one suitcase for 40 years through the wilderness that had Joseph's bones in them. And Joseph wanted to be buried in the promised land. And it was hundreds of years later that happened. Well, some people believe that, you know, the portion in the book of Matthew, I'm skipping all over, but I'm sure enjoying it. I hope you are too. Portion in the, in the gospel of, uh, I believe it's in the book of Matthew says that when Jesus was resurrected, saints of old came out of the tombs and appeared unto many. How many of you are familiar with that verse? That is bizarro. Who could that have been? Well, maybe that's why Joseph wanted his bones buried years and years and years and centuries later. 
because there's some transcendent people in the scripture. They, they live, at least in part, connected to something greater than the common knowledge and understanding of their own generation. And, and David is one of those people. Uh, as I was thinking through it, um, David exceeded the limitations of his day. David tapped into a realm that allowed him privileges, authority, and responsibilities far beyond his contemporaries. But the interesting thing is his contemporaries benefited from the favor on David's life. Um, Joseph's contemporaries very clearly benefited from the favor that was on his life. And so one of the things I think we need to recognize, and I think we don't do uh, we don't really do it very well, is live for a different generation. I think this, one of the scourges of the church is selfishness and lack of vision. And when you study these people, um, like Joseph, and you study David, you, you can't help but marvel because of the kind of lives they lived. I think on our Instagram this morning I put something about David was um, spiritually transcendent, but greatly flawed. And we know, uh, John Mark talked about it last week. And if you didn't get, if you didn't hear last week's message on David part one from John Mark, you, you really do. It would benefit you to, to hear it. But one of the things John Mark was doing as he was preparing the message was he was trying to decide, well, which David do I talk about? Good David or bad David? Because good David was this remarkable, God-loving man that God described this way, a man after his own heart. It's the only person in the Bible that phrase was used for. And then you've got sort of bad David, the murderer, the adulterer, um, you know, in an extremely flawed life. But the wonder of looking at someone like David is, at the very least, it should release encouragement to people that if if David was one of God's favorites if you want to put it in those terms but actually I think everyone's God's favorites but it's only the people that are convinced of it that behave like it and are acknowledged like it and enter into that realm of encounter and experience with the Lord where other people marvel but if David could be one of God's favorites and yet he had such an extremely flawed life, sinful life. I mean, he plotted and planned Uriah's murder. That was um, Bathsheba's husband. Bathsheba's the woman he impregnated. And then he sent Uriah into battle and backed off so he would die, so he wouldn't get caught having done what he did. And yet, there we find in Revelation 22, it says that Jesus is the root and the offspring of David. And that's wonderful. That's wonderful. Um, what's not wonderful is if you're a sinner and you don't know what the solution is. But what is wonderful is that you can have been a terrible sinner. You can have a terrible life. You can have all kinds of flaws and sins and wickednesses or in, in your life. But 
if you have met Jesus, if you've had legit redeeming contact with the Son of God, if you have even a cursory understanding of what he's done for you, you can go from uh, living a life of darkness to living a life of light. Actually, it says that the moment you really give your life to Jesus, you are translated whether you know it or not, you are translated out of one kingdom into another. You're translated out of a kingdom of darkness into a kingdom of light. And then you spend the rest of your life trying to figure out what happened to you and living up to the privilege of the Son of Man dying on your behalf. But David was spiritually transcendent. He was... He was such a remarkable, remarkable man. And I've got like 20 different episodes. Too many stories about David to cover in any detail whatsoever. And so I was going to look at two different things. I was going to look at uh, briefly at three characteristics David had that we should emulate. And then um, we're going to look at how David could... Um, we're going to discover the overarching understanding David had that enabled him to get through his difficulties successfully. How many of you would like to know what that is? I hope I get to it. <laughs> I believe I will. So three characteristics David had that um, we should copy is number one, David inquired of the Lord. Why don't we say that together? It's so important. David inquired of the Lord. Um, the second thing David did was David encouraged himself. And the third thing David was good at was repenting. There's no sin so large that you can't enable God to forget what you've done and blot it out of your book of life through repentance. Nothing. Nothing. So, when you look at um, part of David's life was, uh, he was actually anointed to be king, but nobody seemed to uh, understand that. And, he, through a process of situations, through slaying Goliath, through being an accomplished musician, through being invited to come play his harp for Saul, because Saul had this demon that troubled him and David's music could give Saul some relief, David became more and more prominent uh, in Saul's kingdom. And if you understand um, sort of the order uh Samuel was like one of the first prophets. He was actually sort of a transitional guy between a prophet and a judge or a judge and a prophet. He established the first of the Jewish uh, kingdoms or kings, the first one being Saul. The second one was David. And the third one was Solomon. Each one of them reigned 40 years. So it's very interesting. Well, before David ascended to the throne, the first king grew increasingly more psychotic, and tried to kill him on numerous occasions. And David probably spent between 10 and 15 years running for his life 
from a very crazy king. And as he did that, he also had to fight other enemies like the Amalekites and on several occasions the Philistines. And at a given point, the Amalekites came and burned David's city. They took all their wives, their sons, their daughters, their possessions, and this was like the final straw in David's extended period of testing prior to coming to the throne. Now, there's some tremendous truths in there. If you have a high calling, you are going to be sorely tested. Look at somebody and say, ouch. No one should want that kind of a high calling, trust me. No, 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 that's not right. But if God calls you to really do something, how many of you have gotten real clear prophetic words and then your life fell apart? Really, really, raise your hand. You got a real, guess why you got a real clear prophetic word? The Lord knew what was coming. How would you like for your life to fall apart with no clear prophetic word? And one of the things that happens is the very promises God gives us that initially encourage us, wear us out, and try us as we wait for their fulfillment. That's also, you find that in in the story of Joseph. So what happens is at the end of this long, long, maybe decade-plus season in David's life of testing before he comes to the throne... These people come in and take everything he has, take all their families, and here's what we read. Then David and the people who were with him lifted up their voices and wept until they had no more power to weep. Now David was greatly distressed for the people spoke of stoning him because the soul of all the people was grieved Every man for his sons and his daughters. But David did something we should all listen to. David strengthened himself in the Lord. And then David inquired of the Lord. And I think um, that's so important. And, And this whole thing about David inquiring of the Lord, in some of my notes I saw just in a short period of time where he did it like eight or nine times. And the interesting thing was when when David asked the Lord questions, God answered them. So, that's so important. Um, Now, this idea of encouraging yourself in the Lord. How many of you are familiar with Psalm 103? How many of you can start quoting it? It starts with, bless the Lord, oh, who? Oh, me. My soul. Me, bless the Lord. That's another way to translate Psalm 103, verse 1. Bless the Lord, O my soul. We just have all these flowery, absolutely useless concepts of language sometimes. And we go, oh, bless the Lord, O my soul. All it is. No, no. David was telling himself to snap to attention and believe his beliefs. It wasn't actually what David was doing was singing this. If you really want to memorize something, put it to song and sing it. This is one of the Psalms of David. David would say, bless the Lord, O my soul, 
and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits. What are they? Who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from destruction, who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies. And it goes and goes on and on. And so David's, one of the keys in David's life was that he did not depend on other people's encouragement. He took that as his own personal responsibility. Who said that? Thank you so much. <laughs> she said, good word. And I was talking to her about it. David encouraged himself. Well, nobody will encourage me. Well, there's somebody you've forgotten about that's real close, real nearby. It's you. How do you do it? You remember God's promises and you quote them as though you fake it. You quote them as though he didn't lie. That's sarcasm, cynicism. Oh, oh, think about, I was thinking about this in the night. Draw near to God. And he will draw near to you. I think that's First Peter chapter 4. Say that with me. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. I, I got to thinking about a play on words. Draw. Really that means approach God and he will approach you. But the word there, draw near, I thought about. If you were going to draw God, would you draw him near or would you draw him Far away. Well, your job is to draw him near. Way near. And that's the promise. Draw near to God. God will draw draw near to you. Choose to approach God as though he cares about you. And he will approach you. He will reciprocate. That's, that's aspects of a relationship. But David encouraged himself in the Lord. And David repented. I think it's in Psalm 51. I'm not going to go into that in any detail. But David took personal responsibility for having committed adultery with Bathsheba. And the the most amazing thing happened. When you take personal responsibility and when you repent, God has the power to redeem whatever it was you were doing or what you were in, to at least this degree. He actually used the lineage of Bathsheba to bring forth the Messiah. Bathsheba was that the woman David committed the, that adultery with. And it's remarkable. Now, you can't use that as an excuse for adultery. There are people that think that weird way. I knew a guy one time, he was going to get married, and he'd stayed pure, but he didn't know if he was going to be able to stay pure for another month. And he said to me, what should I do if I don't stay pure? And I said, well, how long have you not had sex out of marriage? He said, probably four years. I said, okay, think about it. You got, what, four weeks? I said, why are you even asking me that? It really makes me really nervous. It's like you're planning on doing it. You want to make sure you got an out card or something. It's like... W.C. Fields was reading the Bible right before he died. Somebody said, what are you doing, W.C. Fields? He was a profane comic. He said, looking for loopholes. (laughs) Well, there's a huge loophole. It's called repentance. (laughs) It's called to take responsibility for your sins. 
And God will redeem you. He will make you into something new. My goodness. Now, um, to understand David, I believe to understand his primary foundational understanding that helped him supersede all his difficulties. We need to understand something about priesthood. And so I'm going to have to get to this in a little bit of a roundabout way. But by the time we get to it, I think you'll really understand why I've had to do it this way. Well, to be a priest in the Old Testament or in David's time, you had to be um, born into the right family. You had to be born in the tribe of Levi, which was Aaron's family. Um, the Levitical priesthood was the primary priesthood in, in Israel. Now, there was a problem in that if you improperly discharged your duties as a priest, or if you were not a priest and attempted to perform priestly duties that God hadn't authorized, you could come under very serious judgment. Is that making sense? You had to be born in the right family. If you weren't from the tribe of Levi, you couldn't be a priest. Didn't matter what your mom or your dad wanted, you couldn't be one. Wrong family. Now, two of Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, say, how many want to name your next child Nadab? That'd be awesome. Maybe you'll have twins, Nadab and Abihu. That'd be awesome. No, but Nadab and Abihu were the sons of Aaron, original priest. They offered an unauthorized sacrifice, and because of it, they died. They were killed. That's pretty serious, isn't it? That, that you can mess up your ministry to the degree that God will kill you over it. Why did that happen? I don't know. I'm just, I'm just telling you what happened. Now, now then we have another situation. We have a situation with Saul. Saul was about to go into battle and he wanted Samuel to come sort of sanctify or, or prayer or bring a sacrifice before they went into battle. Uh, so that it would ensure that they had victory. And Samuel didn't come soon enough to suit Saul. So Saul offered a sacrifice before Samuel came. Saul was not an authorized priest. He was the king. And because of it, he lost his kingdom and jeopardized his destiny for one sacrifice he made because he didn't wait for the priest. That's pretty crazy. Now, probably the three, three greatest kings in the history of in, in Judah, you've got to understand there's a difference in Judah and Israel, but that's, talk about that later. The three greatest kings of Judah were David, Josiah, and Uzziah. And Uzziah had a remarkable run as one of the kings. And one day he decided he was going to put on the priestly garments and offer incense in the temple. So he went into the temple to do that, and I think it said 60 priests withstood him because it was illegal. And Uzziah basically said, I'm the king, I can do anything I want. And he was immediately struck with leprosy and died a leper years later. So... We have a pretty, 
pretty scary pattern here. Nadab and Abihu, an unauthorized sacrifice, it cost them their lives. Saul offered a sacrifice, not a priest. It cost him his kingdom. And Uzziah um, presumptuously offered incense, and he got a disease he couldn't be cured from and died. It's crazy, huh? Okay, now, then you run into David. What does David do? Well, if you remember the teaching we did on the tabernacle, one of the um, one of the pieces of furniture in the in the inner court was the table of showbread. Um, it was the bread of the presence, and the only people authorized to eat that bread were priests. Well, one day David and his men are hungry, so David goes in and he takes the showbread and he eats it. And, and he gives it to his, um, his soldiers and they eat it. What, what does God do? Nothing. You know, if I'm Nadab and Abihu, I'm sort of lobbying for something here. I mean, if I'm Saul, I'm going, wait a minute. If I'm Uzziah, I'm thinking, wait a minute. Well, then, then David did something worse than that. When he got the Ark of the Covenant, now the Ark of the Covenant was another piece of furniture that was in the Holy of Holies, and it didn't just represent, it really was the literal presence of God in the nation of Israel. And through a process of difficulties over history, the Ark of the Covenant was lost in battle. David went back, got the Ark of the Covenant. David puts on Levitical puts on the ephod and begins offering sacrifices as a Levitical priest. And he does it for a number of miles from one location all the way back to Jerusalem. Then he takes the Ark of the Covenant, which belonged in Moses' tabernacle on a mountain called Gibeon. He takes the Ark of the Covenant and puts it in his backyard in a tent he constructed What did God do to him? Nothing. So David refused to return the Ark of the Covenant to Moses' tabernacle. He puts it in his tent in his backyard. It's there for over 30 years. In that tent, they had 24-hour worship. Um, A huge percentage of the Psalms we have were written during that 24-hour 33-year period. And here's what the Lord said about it. Actually, they call that place Zion. And David's tabernacle in Zion became sort of synonymous. So Psalm 132 says this, For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provision. I will satisfy her poor with bread. I will also clothe her priest with salvation. And her saints shall shout aloud for joy. Okay. How did David avoid the same kind of judgment of those other four people that I mentioned when what he did was a much more profound violation of priesthood. How could he get away with that? 
Okay, to understand that, I think we need to look at how David grew up. So I'm, I'm taking you through a little bit of a little bit of a trail here. David. Here's what happened. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, we find the story of um, God deciding to replace King Saul with a new priest. I'm sorry, King Saul with a new king. And so in in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 1, we read this. Now the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I'm sending you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided myself a king from among his sons. Now, Samuel was such an imposing character that when he came to a town, the elders of the town trembled at his coming and asked him, this is verse 4, do you come peacefully? Do you understand this guy was a feared authority in Israel? So much so that city elders would ask him when he came, trembling, why are you here? Do you understand that man had authority? He had something profound on his life. And so... Samuel goes to the house of Jesse, and he says, one of your sons is to be king. And so Jesse brings his sons out, and in verse 6 it says this, so it was when they came that Samuel looked at Eliab and said, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or his physical structure because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So then Jesse called Abinadab, another son. And the Lord tells Samuel, no. And then he brings out Shammah, another son. And the Lord says, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Thus Jesse made seven of his sons passed before Samuel, and Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. And then he said to Jesse, are all the young men here? And then Jesse said, well, there remains yet the youngest. And he says, and there he is, keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and bring him, for we will not sit down till he comes. And so when David, that's who that was, when David walks up, Samuel anoints David as the next king of Israel, and he is essentially a teenager, a young teenager. Now, I wonder if the most... um, imposing and respected spiritual authority came to my house and said, one of your sons is the next king of Israel. Bring them all out. Why would I bring seven of them out and leave eight one in the back somewhere? Well, here's what I personally believe. I believe 
Jesse didn't invite David because he didn't consider him a legitimate one of his sons. And we find, um, we find in Psalm 51 verse 5, David says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. And so what you have is you have David growing up in his father's household. And from what Psalm 51 says, he was an illegitimate child. Apparently, he was the son of Jesse's wife, but not Jesse's son. And so far as he was concerned, he was worthless. And let me ask you this. My wife was telling me the other day, how is it that David as a teenager was put into the position to have to fight Lions and bears. Would you send your 14-year-old son to go fight a lion and a bear just to protect a couple of sheep? Well, you would if you didn't like him. One of the connections Donna wondered, and I wonder this too. Do you remember what David did to Uriah? David put Uriah out. That was um, Bathsheba's husband. David put Uriah out and told the troop to leave him out there by himself so that he'll die. Well, it almost sounds like Jesse did the same thing with uh, David as a young man. And so you, okay, when, th- then when David goes to um, the whole scene with Goliath, the minute he gets there, his brothers start berating him. He actually brings them food and they're chewing him out. They're, they're accusing him of all manner of evil. So you've got this young man, perhaps he's an illegitimate young man, and he's growing up among brothers and parents who don't like him. Actually, David wrote this in Psalm 27. When my mother and my father forsake me, then the Lord will take care of me. That was David's experience. That was how he grew up. It could be understandable. It's understandable to me how dysfunctional his life was. But how did he overcome being rejected? How did he overcome being an illegitimate child? How did David avoid the kind of judgment all those other people suffered? Why would the Lord respond so graciously to David and yet judge Uzziah so seriously for a much lesser action? Here is the key. It was because David knew Jehovah was his father. What? Psalm 89, verse 26. Verses 20 and 21 and verse 26. I have found my servant David. With my holy oil, I have anointed him with whom my hand shall be established. Also, my arm shall strengthen him. And then verse 26. God said, he, David, shall cry to me. You are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. And I've studied the Bible for close to 40 years. And to the best of my knowledge, no one up to this point called God Father.
why would David not be judged with all the things he did as a priest? It was because he was in a higher order of a family that had a higher order of priesthood that superseded the law and the Levitical code. He knew who his father was. And he wasn't talking about Jesse or whoever his father really was. That was the key to David's life. That is the key to every single life. When, when that life needs to come out of difficulty and conflict and confusion and identity issues into a place of stability and prosperity and, and becoming someone who is a conqueror instead uh, of a victim. Now here's just such a great verse, John 1, 12. I want you to repeat each phrase after me. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become. Let's say that phrase again. To them he gave the right to become. To become. If you become something, you weren't before until you become that thing. To them gave he the authority, the right, the privilege to become children of God. So if you've been born again, you're a child of God. We can say without blemish, you're a son of God. You're not the son of God. You're not the redeemer son of God, but you're his offspring. David understood that years, generations. Matter of fact, you don't hear anybody really talk about God as father until the book of Isaiah. And Isaiah begins to mention it. Isaiah actually says this. They shall be named priests of the Lord. Those who have come under the anointing and presence of the Holy Ghost. You can't name people priests. Well, you can if you understand there's a higher order. You can if you understand what God's original purpose was. To have sons and daughters. To have offspring. To have people who so identified with him and so knew his love and his care that they would be called into places of authority at levels normal generational people would never understand or see. That's who David was. That's who Jesus was. Oh, my. Now, I want us to make some proclamations. I'm going to read them first, then we're going to come engage in them ourselves. Based on what I just read, how many of you have received him? Well, he's given you the authority to become children, sons of God, children of God. So here's the proclamation. You are a son of God. First Peter says you are a chosen generation. You are what? A, not just a priesthood, a royal priesthood. 
because you are the child of the king of kings, you are not only a priest, you are royalty. I think about this story Bill Johnson tells about Alexander the Great. A man comes to, a pauper comes to Alexander the Great, wants an offering. And Alexander's assistant says, give him a couple of copper coins. Alexander gives him gold, gives him gold. And his assistant said, copper would have done just fine. And Alexander said, I did not give him an offering based on who he is. I gave him an offering based on who I am. And see, there's something that happens when you know who your father is that you begin to live as royalty. Not arrogant, but as royalty. You can serve because you are royal. Come on. You begin to know who you are. My goodness. You have privileges and responsibilities that will help define you and enable you to fulfill your destiny. Let me just say this. You are loved. You belong. You matter. You're accepted. You have value. You have a purpose. You have a destiny. It struck me, when we find our value and our meaning, etc., in God, when we stop looking for other people to give us that, and they can't give it to us because they don't have it to give, and we spend our lives sucking up to people and trying to get into the right group and being political and say all the right things to try to get something, those people can't even give you. You need something much more profound than human acceptance. You need to understand the acceptance of God. Not just his acceptance, but you are his offspring. He has given you birth. You are his. You are beloved beyond understanding. And when you have your identity in him, everything you were looking to from men and women and situations and places and people seem to just come your way automatically. But when you're looking to people for things only God can give you, you'll never have them. You'll spend a life of frustration. You'll spend a life being angry at whoever didn't give you what you thought they should have given you. But when you know God the way you can know God, you don't need to depend on what everybody else thinks about you. You don't. Because you're loved. You belong, you matter, you're accepted, you have value, you have a purpose, you have a destiny. Let's say I am loved. Are you? Let's say that again. I am loved. I belong. I matter. I'm accepted. I have value. I have a purpose. I have a destiny. When I, when I started this church eight years ago, the Lord told me it was going to be like David's 400. 
And David's 400 were 400 anxious, broke, embittered people. And from those 400 people, David built the greatest kingdom to date in that history. Out of those kind of people. Then I discovered that's really about the only kind of people there are. Right? The people who gathered around David while he was in the wilderness were those who were in distress, those who were in debt, those who were bitter in soul. This band of malcontents was transformed to become the nucleus of David's kingdom. Okay, that is so, so important. What was David's key? He knew God was his father. That's so simple, but it's so profound. Amen. Praise the Lord. Hey, why don't we stand up together? I'd like to go ahead and invite the ministry folks up, prayer team. You guys can come up now. Hey, was that was that bread made by Verdant Bread Company? No, that was fr- that was from Food Lion. Okay, all right, okay. <laughs> Praise the Lord. <laughs> we'll have it next time, right? Okay. Well, thanks for being here today, guys. Um, I if, just want to go ahead and invite you. If there's anyone that needs prayer this morning for any reason at all, we've got our, some folks up here that would love to spend some time praying with you, praying over you. So um, just just come forward at the end of service, and these folks would love to pray pray for you. So, um, but before we go, let me just uh, let me just pray over you, and uh, we'll do this together. Father God, thank you so much for the the fine meal that you've served us this morning. We thank you for your presence. We thank you for your grace that we are continually being formed by and we are continually trusting in. And Father, for the week that's in front of us, I pray uh, I pray total freedom from fear and anxiety for the people of God this week. As we head into the holiday, Lord, I pray that you would lead us and teach us how to walk with total grace this week. We thank you for today. In your name we pray. Amen.